Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who was one of the Major League Baseball's best shortstops for 16 years. He played for the Chicago Cubs, St. Louis Cardinals, and Chicago White Sox. He was a six-time All-Star. His defensive skills earned him back-to-back gold gloves in 1969 and 1970. He was a player manager for the Chicago White Sox, the last player manager in the American League. If that wasn't enough, he also spent six years as a baseball coach at his alma mater at the University of Mississippi, leading the Rebels to four 30-win seasons, where his 1995 team produced a school record for wins, going 40-22. and 22. Both his sons played for him at Old Miss. Following the 1996 season, he resigned his head coaching position to become Mississippi's Associate Athletic Director for Internal Affairs, while concurrently serving as a chair of the NCAA Baseball Rules Committee. It's an absolute thrill to welcome number 11 in your program, the one and only Don Kessinger. Welcome, Don. Oh, thank you so very much. Pleased to be with you. It's absolutely our pleasure. Let's let's go way back. Let's go back to high school where you earned All-State in football, basketball, Forest City High School. The high school only had baseball during your sophomore year. Nevertheless, the baseball team finished second in the state that season. Your high school football team was so good it only lost two games in your three years. What are some of the lessons you learned from playing for coaches James DeVazer and Ed Henderson at Forest City? Well, I was really blessed. I'll tell you, you know, high school sports are cyclical because the athletes, you don't recruit them. They just, when they're there. And uh, I came through Forest City High School with a great group of athletes and and, uh, coaches. Uh, Coach DeVazer and Coach Henderson in football and basketball, respectively. And uh, so, uh, you know, we we really won a lot of games. That's because we had a lot of talent and good coaches. But I have nothing but great memories of my high school career. You know, it's interesting, though. We mentioned that you only were able to play one year of high school baseball. You point to your time playing five years of American Legion baseball with Noel Couch and the King Beasley Post Four in Forest City as the place that really honed your baseball skills. You valued your time there so much that you even managed the year of Legion Ball yourself. Why was Legion Ball so important to your development? Well, because <laughs> very simple, because that's the only option we really had. Uh, during those years I came through there um, in the late 50s, which I hate to talk about that, but anyway, <laughs> it uh, the uh, forest, I mean, Arkansas, really just did not have high school baseball back then. They, in the spring, it was all about track for your athletes and things like that. And uh, so, you know, the only really way we had to continue playing baseball was in the summer with an American Legion was our way to do that. So after graduating from high school, you had several scholarship offers, including the University of Arkansas and the University of Mississippi. Why all Miss over the University of Arkansas? Well, <clears throat> actually, it's an easy question because I grew up in Arkansas and I was an Arkansas fan, and everybody was great to me, so I have no, no ill feelings. But uh, I knew that given the opportunity 
you know, I wanted to try to play professional baseball. And at that time, just like Arkansas high schools, University of Arkansas really put no emphasis on baseball. As a matter of fact, my senior year, Arkansas, University of Arkansas did not even play in the Southwest Conference, which their athletic teams were a part of. And uh, so they just didn't even have maybe 12, 15 games scheduled as hard as it is to believe because they're a great program now and have been since then. But at that time, if I wanted thinking about baseball, Arkansas would not have been the right place for me to go. Conversely, um, Ole Miss, I thought at that time, was probably the best program in the South. And from my hometown in Arkansas, actually, I was closer to Ole Miss than I was to the University of Arkansas. So that's just the way it worked. And I happened to choose, I think, choose the right one because it worked out good for me. Yeah, I would say so. You're named All-SEC in baseball and basketball as a sophomore, junior, and senior. All-American in both sports as a senior. During your senior year, you led the SEC in batting average and hits, stolen bases. On the basketball court as a junior, you led Ole Miss in scoring, had a 49-point game against Tulane. And it's interesting. This is why, like, when you go back in history, you find, like, these little interesting nuggets. So during your senior year, you finished second in the conference in scoring to a guy on Kentucky named Cotton Nash. And for our younger audience, Cotton Nash actually went on to play in the NBA and in Major League Baseball, and on the other side of Chicago at the same concurrently while you were with the Cubs. Um, you drew interest from both basketball and baseball pro teams. Why baseball and why the Cubs, even though they didn't offer you the most money? Well, actually, the, the, going back to how old I am, the, uh, they, the baseball draft didn't actually start till the next year. So I really wasn't involved in the draft. It was kind of whichever team you decide works best for you if they want you. And uh, so, yeah, no, you're correct. You've done your research, I tell you. Uh, No, they probably didn't give – Cubs probably didn't give me the most money, although there wasn't a lot of difference. But uh, they convinced my dad and me and my college coach, Tom Swayze, who was – in on those meetings that I had the best opportunity maybe, or at least we felt I had the best opportunity to get to the big leagues quicker if I played well with the Cubs than with anybody else we were talking with. So June 19th, 1964, Scout Thomas Shaky Kane signs you to the contract, like we mentioned with the Cubs, report to Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas, the Cubs double-A team affiliate. You play 77 games for manager Alex Grammis, interestingly enough, who was also a shortstop in his time. Less than three months later, September 7th, 1964, you make your major league debut with the Cubs as a pinch hitter in the bottom of the sixth inning against the Milwaukee Braves. What do you remember about your first day in the majors? Well, I certainly didn't hit a home run that first time up (laughs) or gotten a good base hit. But, no, it was just thrilling. Honestly, it's just thrilling to walk in that big league clubhouse, put that uniform on, and run out there and get a chance to participate. And uh, so I I didn't really know that I'd be with Chicago that long, but it worked out really well for me. And uh, the fans were great to me, and and, uh, the organization was great to me. And so uh, 
you know, I, I was just, I think I, maybe sometimes you're lucky. I picked the right club to go with, I think, out of high school. You know, I mean, out of college. The 1965 season would mark the first of nine consecutive seasons in which you would work alongside Cubs second baseman Glenn Becker. Um, I, I remember, you know, vividly starting to follow baseball as an eight-year-old and nine-year-old with the Mets, and it was Bud Harrelson and Kim Boswell. But I vividly remembered that you guys were just the, you know, the best, you know, keystone, you know, double play combination. What about Becker complemented your game so well? What, what was it about the chemistry between the two of you that made you the preeminent double play combination in, in Major League Baseball? Well, you know, we, we both came up at, at basically the same time to the big leagues. And uh, as, a, as I was fortunate when I went to the minor league ball my first year that Alex Ramos had been a really good shortstop and he was my manager. Well, that year with the Cubs, when Beck and I came up, Al, uh, Alvin Dark was uh, a coach for the Cubs. And I tell you, he just was very special to us. He thought we had a chance to stay there a long time. And we would go out early before batting practice most every day. And Alex would work with Beck and me on, you know, timing and where to throw the ball. So we'd know exactly what to do, no matter what the situation. So the following year, Leo DeRosha becomes the manager of the Cubs. You become the leadoff hitter as well as a switch hitter. How important was Leo to your evolution as a player, and what role did Pete Reeser have in making you a switch hitter? Well, that's good. Those are good questions. Leo was Leo. You know, I mean, <laughs> he he had, he had the reputation, and and he knew baseball. He had been in the game forever, and uh, you know, one of the greatest things Leo did for me was stayed with me. I mean, I. I became a switch hitter during that second year. I was a right-hand hitter, and and uh, and so I had asked in spring training about possibly trying to switch it a little bit, and uh, which I'd never done. But uh, uh, the hitting coach or somebody didn't ever tell Leo that I'd wanted to do that. In May of that year, uh, you know, I was hitting two thirty, maybe two forty, something like that. I don't know, and. Uh, Leo came up to me and said, I just heard yesterday that you had wanted to try to switch it. And I said, no, that's correct. And he said, well, get in the cage and let's see what it looks like. And, and I, uh, so I took some batting practice left-handed that day. And when I got out of the cage, he said, oh, that looks good. Let's go with that. Let's work on it. I'm starting today, we'll work on it and for a little while. So anyway, Leo is only Leo could do it the next day. We happened to have a pretty good lead on some Houston, and um, he called me down in the middle of the game. And he said, "This might be a good time for you to try to switch it." <laughs> when one thing I was convinced of at that time, that early stage of my career, that I wasn't going to tell him no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, so, anyway, I, I I said, "Okay, let's give it a shot." So. I went up there and I actually hit the first ball pretty hard, a line drive to the to the shortstop, and then the next time I batted, I hit a line drive to the center fielder. Both offers, but nonetheless, it was it was encouraging, you know. And uh, but but uh, I hit left-handed the rest of the year, and as the season went on, it was tough, and my average started going down. And I recall asking Leo after one game. 
a month later maybe and i was down to 200 or something and uh we're walking off the field after a game and i said skip you think maybe we ought to wait till spring and work on this <laughs> he said no no we're not going anywhere this team's not we're not going to go anywhere this year so you just keep it up keep up keep doing it and i said well okay so uh, that's what happened and seriously Second half of that year, I hit a little over 300, I think, and ended up at 266 or 7 or somewhere in there. So I, I give Leo all credit in the world. I was ready to postpone that for a while. And uh, he just said, no, no, this is the right thing to do. If you just tuned in, we're talking to six-time All-Star, two-time Gold Glove winner Don Kessinger. You mentioned Leo and the impact he had on you, but not only that, you take a look at that 1969 season, and if you go back in history and you analyze what that season could have been, it could have been such a magical year for the Cubs. The Cubs start the regular season going 16-7 and in April. They have a two-game lead over the Pirates. June 15th, you set a major league record when you played your 54th straight errorless game. July 4th, you start a two-run rally off, you know, unheard of at that time, Bob Gibson in the 10th inning. Um, the Cubs win that game 3-1. to one. You had three hits, make two outstanding plays in the field. At that point, you were also the only Cub to have played every inning of every game that season. You're then named as a starter to the National League All-Star team, along with the entire infield of Banks, Beckford, and Santo, and catcher Randy Hundley. Do you remember the feeling... Headed into that All-Star break at 61-37, and 37, which was the best record at the time in the National League, second best in all of baseball. Oh, no. We, I vividly remember it. And, uh, you know, we uh, it was a magical year for us. It was one of those deals that's the best of times and the worst of times. You know, we, we were doing great. The city loved us. The whole thing was people going crazy. And... Uh, but then we get the last month, uh, the Mets just played phenomenally. You know, they really did. They, of course, they had that great pitching, and and uh, and and they just played great. They got every big hit they needed, at least where we were concerned. And uh, and, and no matter how hard we tried, it was one of those: the harder we played, the behinder we got. <laughs> it. Uh, but they were great. I can't take anything away from the Mets except to say I thought they were the second best team in the National well, League. Well, <laughs> you know, down this is AJ Carter, and, and some of us remember watching from the other side, watching the Mets make their advance and seeing and following the team closely and watching as they're advancing on, on the Cubs and the leads narrowing. And it comes to September 9th, 1969. There's a game at Shea Stadium, and you're at bat, and a black cat comes onto the field. So people saying uh, here that was the turning point thing. From your perspective, tell us about the black cat incident. You know, it's it's, it's one of those deals that I just had to grudgingly give them whoever got a black cat in the stadium and turned it loose where it walked across in front of our dugout. I mean, I can't imagine that was an easy thing to do. So I, I. Uh, I don't believe the black cat had anything to do with it, but I sure did give a lot of credit to that dude that did it. <laughs> and, uh, it was, uh, and, and as Santo, maybe a little more superstitious than me, Santo was in on deck circle there swinging a bat, and it, it freaked him a little bit. And uh, so anyway, uh, we didn't, none of us thought the black cat did anything, but I can tell you those two days you're talking about Seaver and Kuzman did a lot. Yeah. And, uh, 
You know, it's also interesting because, you know, over the course of the 15 plus years AJ and I have done the show, we've, we've spoken to a lot of the 1969 Mets. And, and they, I, I know that Leo DeRocher was one of the greatest managers. And also, you take a look at that roster you had, it'd be hard-pressed to, to bench an Ernie Banks for even a day or, or Beckett or Santo or Kessinger or, or Billy Williams. But one of the things they point to is, you know, that the fact that you guys had to play all those day games at home, um, and Leo didn't platoon, and they kind of felt that come September you guys were gassed. Uh, do you subscribe to that theory? To a degree, I do. I, uh, I I would have to tell you, if you ask me at any point in time, do you need a day off? I said, heck no, we're in the middle of a pennant race, you know. So I, I can't really blame, uh, blame Leo for that. I do think that... Uh, not, I mean, that playing all day ball with no lights, and it was a, a hot summer by Chicago standards. And uh, yeah, I do think it took a toll on us. Uh, but I would not blame Leo one day for that because if you asked any one of us, do we we need we need a day off today? We would have laughed at him. You know, no. And uh, this is fun. We're doing good. You know, we're winning. And. Uh, so I, I can't blame him, but I do think that the fact that we played every day in the hot sun, one thirty in the afternoon, and other teams weren't, that might have had a toll on us toward the end of the year. So it's interesting because aside from your great career, one of the, the reasons I really wanted to speak to you tonight is that tomorrow is actually the 50th anniversary of the 1971 All-Star Game. And for some of our younger audience, they might not know really how important that game is because it had a total of 26 future Hall of Famers, 21 players, both managers, National League coach Walt Olson, Hall of Fame umpire Doug Harvey, future Hall of Fame manager Joe Torre. This was your fourth All-Star game, and every one of the, the three prior had a share of star power. But do you recall the feeling of being in that National League locker room with Johnny Bench, Willie McCovey, Henry Aaron, Willie Mays, Willie Stargell, Juan Marichal, Tom Seaver, Lou Brock, Roberto Clemente, and then just for good measure, throw in your teammates Ron Santo and Fergie Jenkins. All of those mentioned are Hall of Famers, and a guy who statistically should be in the Hall of Fame, Pete Rose. Do you remember looking around that room and, and, and thinking like all these guys are going to the Hall one day? You know, I was so blessed to play in six of those games. And, and uh, yeah, I, every time, every time I walked in, and particularly the first two or three, but every time I walked in that locker room, sat down in front of my locker and looked around that clubhouse at those names you threw out there, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, uh, Roberto Clemente, I mean, Tom Seavers, uh I mean, it's just phenomenal. Now you look around and think, "What am I doing here, man?" And uh, so it was. Uh, it was just so much fun. I'm just telling you. And the National League, at least back in that day, uh, you know, we dominated those games pretty good bit. I think we lost the one you're talking yeah. about in Detroit. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but. Uh, but I think, if I remember correctly, I think Bud Harrelson was a, was started yep, that yes. game in yes. Detroit. Yeah, yeah. Bud was such a good guy and a great player, hard competitor. He you know, really fought hard. Your, your games were so similar. You were in buddies. You know, very good fielding, uh, okay hitting, but that wasn't the main part of your game. 
they're on the they're on the team that at least in '69, going next few years after that, were your main competitors. You ever feel any pressure being compared to Buddy uh, and looking at your games and think about that? Um, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, you know, back then we there weren't so many sports agents and uh, or long term or long term contracts, and so it was kind of negotiate with your general manager <laughs> after each year, and. Uh, Oh, no, I'm sure during that period of time, Bud's name and mine were compared by one or, one or, one or the other of us. And because uh, we were, we our numbers, everything was pretty similar to that. And, and uh, but you're 100% right. I mean, if they were going to lose any part of our game, they didn't want it to be in the field. Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, yeah, but I'm, as I say all that, Bud's got my World Series ring. <laughs> yeah you know and aj mentioned this so like nowadays a big part of all-star games are the home run derbies obviously i don't think you and buddy in that 71 game would have been the guys that would participate in that home run derby but you take a look and that home run derby could have been mccovey aaron and stargell versus frank robinson al Kaline, and reggie jackson I'm just oh, Reggie Jackson! You know yeah, Reggie yeah. Jackson. Reggie did his thing during yeah. the game that yeah, that, yeah. that game. Yeah, I mean, so, what, what happened? All just like today's the precursor of today's games, baseball. All the runs were scored on home runs in that game. Right in that game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this futures game they played today, and I wasn't watching that closely, but. Shoot, there were a lot of home runs in that Futures game today. Yeah, it's all about launch angle these days. But So here's what I really find interesting. October of 75, after 11 years with the Cubs, you traded to the St. Louis Cardinals. After a good season in St. Louis, August of 77, you traded to the White Sox. The Chicago White Sox pulled the Don Kessinger night, September 8, 1978, with 31,000 Chicago baseball fans, according to Baseball Digest, evenly split between Cubs and White Sox fans are there to thank you for being Chicago's shortstop for all those years. I have to think that day, getting that adulation was great, but wearing a White Sox uniform, it, it, it had to feel kind of strange, right? <laughs> oh, it was strange. And uh, But, you know, I had seen Ron Sano, my buddy, um, go from the Cubs to the White Sox a couple of years earlier, and it was just one of those things that didn't really work, you know? And uh, so when I was, when Bing Devine from the Cardinals called me and said, we've traded your contract to the White Sox, I said, you yeah, really? <laughs> and, uh, no, so I called Bill Beck and uh, he said, you know, we're talking about it. And I said, when do you want me? To? I was in St. Louis. I said, when do you want me to get there? He said, you haven't seen this play a lot, have you? <laughs> I said, well, no, but I know you're tied for first place right now with the Yankees. And he said, yeah, but defensively, you need to get here tonight. <laughs> and so anyway, it was kind of a that's kind of a relationship I was building. My first game there, I will tell you this, not any way other than you, you'll understand what I'm saying. I didn't know when I dressed out for that game against the Yankees and, and uh, that night in, in Comiskey Park, it was a full house because they were literally, I think, tied. And uh, 
And I thought, oh, boy, man. And so anyway, I got there, and I wasn't starting, and that was good, good, probably. And uh, Bob Lemon, who's a great guy, and if you can't play for Bob Lemon, you probably couldn't play for anybody. He's a great guy, good manager. And uh, he came down in the middle of the game to me, or late in the game, and he said, hey, Kiss, Kiss, you uh, – if Lamar Johnson gets a base hit, I want you to go run for him. Well, there were two odd things about that. Number one, I used to run pretty good, but my last couple of years, I don't recall pinch running for anybody. But uh, and and so I said, okay. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, if I run out on the field to run for, him, I don't know if I'll make it to the base. Somebody shoot me. You know? I mean, I just had no, I just had no idea what the reaction to Chicago fans where I'd spent those years with the Cubs. And uh, I think it's the first time and only time in my career I probably was pulling for a guy not to get a base hit. You know, it seemed like, and, uh, but so, anyway, he hit a, Lamar hit a double, and Bob Lemon told me to go. So I, I started out there, literally, I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. And I ran out to second base, and literally – they gave me a standing ovation that really lasted a couple of minutes. And it's the greatest feeling I think I probably ever had because it was just so unexpected, you know, and it was just like you said earlier, just glad to have you back. And uh, so Bucky Dent came over to me. I was standing on second base and I recall he came over and he said, what'd you do to these people? <laughs> and I said, Bucky, I don't have any idea, but don't you say a word. You go back and play shortstop. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, it was a great night uh, for me and uh, one of those things you'll never forget. And Bill Veck respected you so much. He made you the manager of that team, uh, which also you were the, and interestingly enough, the, the person that took over for you. Tony Larusa is now the manager of the Chicago White again. Sox again. But you yeah, know, I, t- I I told Tony, oh, not too, not too many years ago. I ran into him somewhere. He was doing a signing, and I stopped by to say hello. And I went. And I said, "Hey, you know, if I'd been a ma- better manager, you'd never, you would never <laughs> been in the Hall of Fame." <laughs> so, so tomorrow is not only the 50th anniversary of the 1971 All Star Game, a great All Star Game. It is the 42nd anniversary of maybe one of the darker, if not the darkest nights in baseball history, and that was Disco Demolition Night. So, tell us your memories of what happened that night as the manager of the White Sox. What went through your mind, seeing what was going on on the field between the two games and whether you wanted to play the second game? I'll tell you, anybody that hasn't heard of Disco Demolition or seen it, they need to Google it, you know, and uh, just Google Disco Demolition. And uh, it, it was quite a night. And, uh, and you know, it's one of those things that we were between games of the doubleheader, the the disco station, uh, I mean, excuse me, a rock station yeah. was sponsoring the night. And they anybody that brought a disco record got in for a lesser fee or what. And so, between game, yeah, and between games of the doubleheader, they were going to pile them on center field and blow them up. Disco demolition, disco records. And, uh, and it's uh, between games, but you could just feel the tension come just sensing. And, uh, 
the crowd was chanting stuff they shouldn't have been chanting, and it was, it just was, it was a scary night. And uh, between games, I'm thinking, boy, whoever's doing this thing out there, I think his name was Steve Dahl, the DJ. I said, please don't rile us, rile them up anymore, because this is not not real good. And so. But he came out, and he did just the opposite, really. He just stirred them up, and they all came piling out of the stands. And I'm going to tell you, there's probably six, seven, eight thousand people on the field with torches and everything else. And so I took the player. I told the player, let's go back in the locker room. So we went in the locker room and locked it up. And uh, they called me from upstairs a few minutes later in the press box and said, the umpires want to meet with you and Bill. And uh, he said, they say they don't need no forfeit or anything, but they want to meet with you. And uh, he, uh, so I said, well, where, where is Bill? <laughs> and because I was in the locker room locked in. You know? I said, where is Bill? And they said, he's out in, uh, he's out in the middle on the infield out there trying to get people back in the stands. And uh, so I went out, and Bill was standing in the middle of the bound second base, and he had a mic with him, and he was saying, would you please get back in your seats? Would you please return to your seats so we can play the second game? And uh, well, I just went, and I went up to him, and I'm weaving in and out of people up there, and I just wanted to be on said, Bill, umpires want to see us. And he said, we're not forfeiting. We're going to play this. I said, yeah, okay. Let's go mm-hmm. talk to him. And uh, – so we went in, we met with umpires, and they told us that it just wasn't a situation they felt we need to be playing, and that, um, but there's no forfeit involved. It was just postpone the game till a later date. And Bill, anyway, eventually, Bill said, no, we're playing. And so we, it must have been an hour between games, but they got the field back ready to go, and we walked out on the field, and the umpires walked out and said, Field's unplayable. Game's uh, no no game. And uh, didn't make Bill very happy. But anyway, we, we didn't play, and it was an unbelievable night that I guess I've answered that question as much as any <laughs> other. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, and, and uh, it's just but, – but, by the way, we got a telegram the next day that said we had forfeited from the <laughs> league office that said we'd forfeited that After game. all that, it's amazing. <laughs> Don, yeah. thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, we would love, and I, this is what I want to circle on my calendar. We want to have you back when your grandson, Gray, makes it to the majors, currently playing in double-A with the Houston Astros, who had a very good day today. Um, so thank you so much. It was a thrill speaking to you tonight. I appreciate you. I'm sitting here, you know, this is, I'm technologically not that advanced, but my wife helps me. But I'm sitting here while I was talking to you, and was watching Gray, my grandson, play tonight in uh, Corpus Christi. In fact, he came to the plate just a minute ago and got a base hit. So that's a good start, see? Awesome. Thanks so much. We look forward to speaking to you when he makes his Major League debut, hopefully this year or next. Thank you. And tell Bud Harrelson, Cleon Jones, and all those people, you know, I don't like them very much, but I appreciate that. (laughs) You got I appreciate it. The, I appreciate though what they did, and they were really good. Awesome. Thanks so much, Don Kessinger, six-time All-Star, two-time Gold Glover.